Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sloppy Lab. Uh, I am J.T. Russell, and uh, I have a fun story for you all today. Um, today, I added the seventh person to my uh, TCO block list. It's a big moment. We oh. do not abide by the number six on the stream, <laughs> <laughs> and no one knows that better than my host, uh, co-host, uh, Quick Draw three four five seven. <laughs> Happy Tuesday. Uh, I am just going to say I'm disappointed to hear that you blocked that person. I, I know who you mean. I would have, I would have kept that going for a while. That was good stuff. I thought. I don't know. I think you made a mistake. So I'm not going to, uh, not going to do any public shaming. But uh, I, uh, well, I'm going to have to share this with with Murph and some of the other cats uh, uh, or maybe some of the other DT fans. But I brought a middling mid sass seventies mid seventies sass uh, dark tidings deck to the competitive queue on TCO and uh, I was cursed out from net decking. <laughs> I'm uh, a deck that I have a verification pick I mean, it, it's a good deck. Like I, I didn't, I guess I do earlier, like I'm surprised that that would be a deck that they would accuse you of net decking. I was like, I don't mean that like insulting to that deck. It's a cool deck. But like of all the decks that you're going to like rage quit and say, you're just net decking, you try hard. Like he chose that <laughs> deck. Like, Okay. Oh man! Oh, and here and speak of speak the devil's name. Hey, Fudgenator. Hey, Murph. Yeah, we were just talking about about the OP overpoweredness of Dark Tidings, and uh, and how I got my uh, very my seventh my seventh uh, block list. Actually, I'm curious how many people are on your block list. Quick draw. Good question. I haven't added one in a very long time. Um, so let's just call that a win for the community in general. Haven't needed it. Mm -hmm. I have mm -hmm. way more than seven. Too many to count. Way more than seven. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Probably 20. My, my general take on this is, you know, everybody gets to have a bad day. That doesn't mean I want to play with you again. <laughs> I have various reasons for having blocked people in the past. Typically, it's just someone who's not pleasant to play against. Like, if they mm -hmm. just rage quit and they hit the concede and just leave without saying anything, that's fine. You know, like... Yep. I had no problem with that. It happens. Mm -hmm. But it's when like they throw insults or if they do some shenanigans, like just sit there for an hour, disconnected. Um, I'm going to wait for them to come back to concede, <laughs> but I will block them when it's all said and done. So I am so stubborn. I had somebody do the do the rage disconnect and I, I was I was pretty sure this person was doing it to to kind of protect their TCO stats, you know? Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, you know what? I just got meetings the rest of the day. I'm gonna leave the window up. <laughs> every yeah. time you come back to DCO, you'll be back in the game. <laughs> yeah, you just leave them a message every single time or something like that. Uh, just you know, uh, you know, just just let it be. <laughs> On the flip side of it, I've had a few cases where I got disconnected, lost power, something like that, and I felt so bad because I thought that they were yeah. gonna like think that I'm a rage quitter. And it, like mm -hmm. so many times that I've actually two or three times I've gone back to find them in another game and said, hey. I lost my internet. I'm sorry. Good game. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of them was actually on stream with Boulevard Blake when it happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess everyone watching that stream that night probably thought I was a rage quitter. Um, but to, to Blake's credit, he came back later and said, oh, yeah, quick draw just messaged me and said he got disconnected and apologized. So <laughs> if, if anyone stuck around to hear that, I'm good. But if they had to like cut out, then they still probably think I'm a rage quitter. You are a chronic rage quitter, quick draw. We all know. <laughs> No, just just kidding, folks who don't know. A gentleman and a scholar, this quick draw. If yeah. I haven't quit on you mid-game in one of these streams where I can't beat you, then I'm like, I'm never going to rage quit. 
if it wasn't on camera, I don't know. After the lights go off, we play more. We play. We go through like 50 games because it's like three turns in, I'm done. <laughs> All right, again. <laughs> One of these days, my camera feed is just going to cut out and I'm just going to disappear. And you're just going to be left talking to talking to the chat here about what happened. Yeah. <laughs> what happened and uh, yeah hey, and uh big thanks for the raid uh swindle dust chronicles let's go welcome into the chat happy to have you all here fun times we were enjoying uh reminiscing on some uh, dark tidings and the salt the salt that the sea inspires from mm. time to time tastes know? so good it tastes so good and um i guess the deck the deck in question here is one that i think i'll probably touch on this evening at some point so that's pretty cool too nice uh on theme segue or not i don't know but yeah, do you want to do a tee up the topic for us? Uh, quick yeah, draw? so um, this is going to be our second installment of our archetype series. We spent a few weeks, we actually almost talked about this last week, but we wanted to stew on it more, talk on it more. Um, and we still don't have answers, but we're going to kind of unveil what we're looking at and how we're considering um, archetypes and how we're approaching this whole conversation. We have a number of different components, as we're calling them, sort of, um, that we're going to kind of weigh when we're talking about this. And so this is still the exploration discovery phase for us as we're doing this. But I think the important thing that I've thought this whole time and that I also want to like keep in context for us to focus on is that there's a lot of established archetypes out there in the community. There's a lot of names and deck types that people refer to, and they've been defined pretty well. I think we're trying to do something a little bit different. Like we're not trying to just rehash a lot of those that have conversations that have happened in other places we're trying to kind of dig a little bit deeper into how a deck wins like what it does over the course of that game to help it win uh and i think a lot of the archetypes as we've like looked into this i've like the ones that are commonly known in the community i've kind of felt in some ways they're not really accurate they're not really like a good descriptor of what this deck is trying to do to win and so we're going to talk about some of the components of what we consider important for how a deck is defined in an archetype and we have a few different things we're going to kind of go through um again we don't have the answers yet like we're still kind of figuring this out um but we've had a lot of good discussion i think um jt and i and our team sloppy lab work this week and kind of trying to flesh this out better and um i think we've made some good progress so this will be this will be somewhat part brainstorming somewhat like we're refining it live with y'all love love to get some feedback and see how what resonates and what doesn't and i i definitely couldn't agree more that there are a whole lot of the names that you hear that okay, maybe I know what you mean when you say that name, that archetype. But like you said, it doesn't necessarily tell me much about the deck or or it's too or too broad or uh, there's not a whole lot of useful information other than just kind of like giving me a rough sense for maybe 12 of the cards in your 36. There is value in that, but uh, what I'm kind of hoping for is having some of these kind of scales or or names or categorizations that can really start to help you organize your thinking or line up crafting or even just even just better express some of the similarities or differences uh, between the decks in this wonderful game that we love so much. And you talked about scales. We've studied a lot of different ways to measure what a deck's doing, um, different ends of the spectrum. And there's one that you came up with that we started with that I think is fantastic. I think we're definitely going to stick with this one throughout the entire process. We're still kind of working on the others and seeing what works. But the first one is the, the rush and grind scale where um, it's really trying to talk about how long a deck wants a game to last. There are some decks that want the game to be over in five turns because they just want to make Amber as fast as possible, and that's it. That's their goal. That's what they're good at. Um, But then there's other decks who, um, if the game is over in five turns, it means they definitely lost. They're trying to extend the game through various Mm -hmm. means, sort of a grind deck, as we've called it. So this rush and grind scale 
is um, just a linear scale from one end to the other, where it's like essentially thinking, how long does this game expect to go with this deck? And we're going to look at some decks tonight that are kind of on the, the grindier side, like the one you have displayed right now, Destrotage, Spawn of Dragon Tower. Rush, I think, is one um, archetype that I think we both agreed is something that makes total sense. It fits in with what we're trying to do. It's well-established in the community. I don't think we're going to talk about Rush too much because I think people generally know what like Rush at its core is, which is just make money as fast as possible, win the game as fast as possible. And there's different scales of that, like different extents to which it can take advantage of that. And there's going to be different like side shoots of that too, I think. But I think we'll start talking about the grind a little bit and what that means for us in a deck like Destrotage. You know, one of the reasons why... I don't want to go too deep on Rush because I agree it probably is one that folks know, but um, I also think it's one of the one of the existing deck labels or archetype names that I like most, and what lent itself to the an, at least initial name for the scale or idea for the scale. And I think the, one of the reasons why I like it so much is that it actually does tell you an awful lot about what the deck's doing, how it's interacting with kind of game length, and and how it's trying to apply pressure. And you have like a real idea of what sort of game plan to expect from a deck when someone says, Hey, I'm bringing a rush deck and immediately you have like, okay, I hope, hope that uh, I want to have, you know, certain types of cards or categories of cards to combat a deck like that. So it already is, you already have things in mind that are like, well, what are some of my counter strategies? What are, what specifically is it trying to do to win the game? So I, I like rush as a archetype name, but yeah, I don't think we have to spend a, a ton of time on it, um, but it deserves a shout out in, in that it kind of, lent some inspiration to the scale in particular and we we've tried to come up with a number of different things um for other scales that will complement the rush and grind and we're still working on some things but like some of the things we've talked about is whether a deck's proactive or reactive you know does it need to have a board established to do what it's trying to do or is it able to immediately respond to the opponent's threats no matter what they are threats and answers is another way that you put that is it the one that's putting out the threats or is it one that's able to handle the opponent's threats? And so these are all different kind of categories we're trying to think of with, with decks as we look at them and try to figure out where they kind of fit into our plan. And as we're layering on some of these different scales, different ways that you could kind of, kind of, you know, project the various decks out there onto a scales, you, there are natural kind of uh, cross sections or intersections between them. So you could start to think about in, have, we all have some examples of decks that fall into these categories, I guess, but you know, what does a grindy proactive deck look like? Or you can start to mix and match some of the ones that are on the extremes or, or uh, interesting points of these various scales, you know, where we find, where we find the existing archetype labels that, that fall into those categories is going to be good to call out. And I think there's going to also be some, some ones that maybe don't have a name yet. And that'll be, that'll be cool too. Yeah. Get to make our own names. Yeah, make some some names indeed. <laughs> I think we're going to probably end up leaning very heavily on arc stats. If not utilizing them, then asking some questions about how decks can have very similar arc stats, but maybe fall into very different categories in some of the scales that or categorizations that we're going to be proposing. And that'll be fodder for or an opportunity to say like, well, are we on the right track? Is it is it kind of valid to have almost identical arc stats, but not necessarily be in the same main categorizations that we're, we're thinking through. Um, so that'd be interesting. I, I also don't want like a new deck evaluation system, but I do think that perhaps like a, a pipe dream of all of this end result could be that we have like a short list of questions, like 
maybe five questions about like, where do you feel this deck falls on a scale of, of like rush to grind or proactive to reactive, things like that. If we could drop that in there, answer questions about the deck, and then it'll tell you what the archetype is. Mm-hmm. That would be like the, uh, the extent that I think we could go with it. And that's going to be a real challenge because so far, like we've had trouble figuring out what are these scales that we want to even measure here. And then you have to be able to translate that into an archetype with accuracy. So like if you play a deck and you know that this is like a high end grind deck, and then you put it in here and you truthfully answer like these different scales, is it actually going to tell you, like, is this formula, if we have something like that, actually going to agree with your assessment of it as someone who's played 100, 150 games with it? That would be pretty cool. I think that might be the extent of any kind of evaluation system that we'd come up with. That would be fun. And we're a ways off from that. We still have a lot of exploration to go. I think it was Beehawk's idea, but uh, interesting, maybe maybe kind of a fun fun exercise at some point would be to just look at the arc stats, not even look at the cards, and see if we could guess from that and and how how well that maps to some of the the categorizations that we've that we've that we put together too. So I think that could be fun. Yeah, maybe we once we get like a little bit of you know some planning, we could maybe solicit some community decks, submit them on mm-hmm. Sloppy Lab Work website. And then have the website kind of split out for some of us, like, here's the deck list. What kind of uh, archetype do you think this is? And then have another one. Here's the arc stats. Can't see the cards. Here's the arc stats. What kind of deck do you think this is? And then Mm -hmm. kind of um, compare it to what the people submitting the deck think as well. I think that might be an interesting experiment. Yeah, it'd be really fun. So let's start with, if we go back and, and talk about how does a deck win? You know, like, I think that was the one thing that we both agreed was very important part of determining what the archetype is like what is your goal to win and for an example of this rush decks obviously just want to make as much amber as quickly as possible whether that's through pips but it could also be a board deck i think i think you could definitely have a rush deck that is about a board but you're still trying to make a lot of amber very quickly using a board as opposed to using pips but one way to also think about this that really gave me pause is like zoomies is one archetype that I think a lot of people have talked about for a very long time. It's very established in the community, but my problem with it is that zoomies does not tell you how the deck wins. Zoomies really is just Mm -hmm. about high efficiency, playing lots of cards, drawing lots of cards, but it doesn't tell you how the deck wins. Like you could have a zoomies deck that has a lot of amber pips and it wins by rushing with amber pips. You could have a Zoomies deck that always has its answers, like the Effervescent Principle or the Kurzap at all times, uh, and it just controls the board that way. could still be a Zoomies deck. Or you could have like a, a board flood deck with Zoomies. And so Zoomies to me is a good descriptor of what the deck does, but it does not describe how the deck wins. And I want to think about how decks win, what their game plan is, what they, um, you, you talk, we're going to talk a bit about spiking. Like what is the deck trying to do? Is there a turning point? a tipping point. And so I think those are better things to look at for defining an archetype than just saying like what the deck does throughout the game, which is like draw cards. Yeah. I think Zoomies is a great name for, I mean, it's sort of like, Hey, I've maxed out on this one stat efficiency. And if you max out on efficiency, I guess, I don't know, maybe the initial, the initial idea, we should probably talk to some of the folks who came up with the name, but the initial idea was like, there's a tipping point where you're like right around 36 and you've read this, reached this state of nirvana where you, every card you play draws you a card and you're kind of just zooming through your deck. It's, it's maybe taking advantage of it being very hard to tell much about what some all the other stats say. Like it's very hard to look at a deck with 30 plus efficiency and say like, oh, not enough C. It's like, well, 
but I'm going through my deck three times as fast as you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find the board wipe probably twice. You know, does does it really matter that I have seven C or or something, right? And and kind of throw some of these other stats out of whack. So it's uh, I don't know, almost almost a name that was kind of describing a, a, a semi flaw in the way that we were historically thinking about decks. Um, but you're right, not necessarily telling me how the deck wins or what I'm going to try and do to like fight it if I see an opposing lineup. How you fight it is very important too, because you could see a Zoomies deck that has 25 creatures and just a bunch of draw, and you know that you're going to have to deal with the board a lot. Like you're not just going to be able to rely on one board wipe because the next turn they're probably going to drop another five creatures on you. So you're going to attack a deck like that differently than you would if it were playing a bunch of Tao Tao and Eddies and just like clogging up your key and using Exhum on Eddie every single turn and just archiving everything and never letting you forge. Like it's probably playing a lot of cards. It's probably archiving a lot of cards, but you're going to play against a deck like that a lot differently than you're going to play against a deck that is just trying to flood the board. There, there are ways to think about how a deck's trying to win. There's ways to think about how you play against the deck even like, you know, if you're looking at your own deck to evaluate what kind of archetype this is, think about what uh, you don't want to see from your opponent. Like, how do you mm. play around that? And like, what are your weaknesses? I think that kind of can also give clues about what your archetype is. And do you have the ability to respond to those weaknesses? Some decks might. They might have a lot of out-of-hand play effects that can handle your answers. And some of them might just be kind of focused more on its own game plan. So one thing that Zoomies does very well as a name is it tells you something about how it feels to play the deck right like okay a longtime mtg player who likes playing storm combo and you're like i just like playing a ton of cards every turn feels good man i uh, like that's what i want to do then maybe like the zooming decks are are going to be cool decks for you good to good fits so i don't know but uh maybe there's a uh qualifier like a zooming the zooming rush or the zooming board deck i don't know <laughs> could be, yeah could be interesting yeah yeah we we talked about giving archetypes like two part names or maybe even more than that like sure it's rush okay rush means that you want to play a fast game and get it over with quick but are you a rush board deck or are you like a rush react deck that is just playing out pips and handling things or are you like a a crush deck which is basically just a rush with um, a lot of board control so there's different aspects of that and i think not just boiling it down to like everything that makes money fast is a rush deck because there's definitely different types of rush decks and you have to think about different ways to play them, different ways to attack them as well. Yeah, I have actually a, a Zoomy that I was dusting off a little bit. So I, I do have Brick Blade, which is in my NKFL lineup. Um, very fond of playing this deck. It has very little C. Its plan is to make you deal with my board, not have me deal with your board. And the little C that it, it's there uh, is for when things go awry. 25 efficiency, so not the magical 36 number, but uh, is definitely capable of flying through the deck with uh, this double punctuated equilibrium on the back of double Kirby or triple Kirby, excuse me, Jericho. How could you forget that third Kirby? (laughs) Kirby. There is so many, I lose count, you know, I just, just kind of, Oh, it's another Kirby. Is this the same one? He's the third son. I'm the third son as well. I'm often forgotten too. (laughs) No, we need the Theseus Kirby. I don't know. (laughs) We need the eldest son is what we need. That joke will make sense later. Um, Also, I just, I got to interrupt you because Literally every single time we mention Brickblade on this show, I'm going to have to remind the users or the the viewers, Brickblade mm-hmm. is the highest efficiency deck in Keyforge that does not contain logos. The highest, the highest, bar yeah. none. And if they print another one, I'm gonna have a lot of work to do tracking it down yeah. to keep the title. I don't know. Yes. Although I I feel pretty good about 
holding that title with a woe. Well, maybe I could be wrong. We'll see. Um, but so I would, I would put this in the zoomy category. Um, maybe not quite as high in the efficiency as some would like to, uh, to be granted that moniker, but this is absolutely like a, a runaway board state type deck. It's trying to flood. You would call it a flood deck. It's a zooming flood deck. If you want to, if you want to kind of give it that, give it that breakdown versus this other deck that I've been dusting off lately, uh, Sightooth, the speaker of the laboratory, the old laboratory, laboratory as it were, uh, 29 efficiency, also very low on the creature control. So really just a standardized testing and a skippy time hog that comes back on loop, but very, very different game plan. Like you, you can, you can spam creatures, but really at least the way that I've been playing it, you're, you're hoping to archive most of the Saurian house and just kind of rock those lethologicas over and over. Or when you finally have to call star Alliance, you're going to play Nell a bunch of, a uh, bunch of upgrades, uh, Anthony, their stuff. And then, you know, maybe Kirby shows you the, the Skippy time hog again or something. So both decks that are doing very different things, but doing it kind of while zooming through the deck as it were. So I think you'd, you'd probably call both of these zooming zoomies though, what they're doing, how they're trying to win and how you'd want to uh, attack them is very different. Yeah. That's why it's, I think it's important to distinguish uh, and not use zoomies as like just the archetype that we're looking at. Um, but I also like one of the things you said about Sightooth, which is that you probably could play it as a flood deck, but you don't. It's interesting that you have that option in a deck like this. So like when we think about archetypes, you have to remember that you're going to have more than one way you can play the deck and you have to recognize mm-hmm. your matchup and what is the right way to play something, you know, in order to maximize your chances. And so how you play a deck might change depending on where you are in the scale compared to where the opponent's deck is in the scale. And this is very related to what we talked about last time in the show with uh, who's the beatdown. You have to be able to adjust your strategy knowing if you're the beatdown or if you're going to be able to outrush or if you're going to need a board in this game because you have very little creature control, you could get into a situation with Sightooth where you know they're going to outzoom you if they if you let them have a board and they'll just reap out and so you might, in that kind of case, be forced to play your creatures more, fight a little bit more, maybe extend the game a little bit more. And I think we want that illustrated in in the archetype that we're talking about as well. Like you're going to have different play styles, you're going to have different angles that you could go with the deck. So like not every rush deck is always just going to rush. One of the things we keep coming back to, and it's it's so hard to categorize Keyforge decks. Like it really is. I mean, everyone's unique. You you don't have this this ability to do any deck building right so it's not like it's not like you have this huge pool but folks have the ability to craft their decks and converge on true archetypes and true like and truly like contract the metagame as it were uh, at least through deck construction so you're playing with that's out there and what's out there is this just like explosion of different possibilities but despite that right so on the one hand you've got this, this this huge wide universe but on the other side you're like well there's actually still a lot of overlap between what each deck can do and there are definitely matchups with Sightooth where yeah I'm trying to be the board deck and you have to remember that each deck can like still just play creatures and reap each deck can just say well my only chance here is just to play actions with amber pips and hope that's good enough because my board keeps getting blown up or, or something mm-hmm. right uh, and so that makes it tough too because you you look at a deck with 18 pips you're like, oh, is this a rush deck? Like, well, maybe in an absolute sense, I wouldn't call it a rush deck, but I should be, I should be leaning into the rushier aspect of it in some matchups. 
and just trying to close out games before the opposing deck can establish like a board dominance or something, right? Yeah, and you said that the nuance in this, like there's so many different decks that are all doing different things, not none of them the same, but they're all trying to do the same thing, which is just forge three keys. They just do it very differently. And we want to try to to picture that. So um let's kind of let's go into a next topic here. Um you had talked about pacing profile. Can you talk about mm. what how you define pacing profile? Yeah. Uh and this is this is still an idea we're we're shopping around a little bit. Uh so yeah, curious what folks think on it. You've got your we're calling rush decks in like this rush to grime scale, right? So on the far rush side, like I, I'm just going fast all the all the time, trying to make trying to make that money as quickly as I can, close these games out. If it's if it's seven turns, game's gone too long, like is it over already type decks. And then on the far grind side, you know, we're really we're really just trying to slow things down, Infernus every turn. Eventually, eventually, I just win because I, I guess I got bored with infernising all your stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, and and you know, thirty thirty game thirty turns is too short. So we've got these two extremes, but in the middle, it's not just like well, I can go a little bit faster, or a little bit slower. It's it's also I can go faster at certain points in the game and slower at other points in the game. And this kind of came came about a little bit as I've been playing uh, Destrotage, I guess. Quick draw says Destrotage. I always say Destrotage, but he's the language guy, so we're gonna go with that. <laughs> I didn't realize that you said Destrotage. I'm I'm just fancy like that, you know, Destrotage. <laughs> it's uh, I guess it's kind of like I don't know, is it French? I would be the wrong one to ask. I don't know. We need okay. we need you, Crusader, and not tonight, and we'll have our our council of uh, experts <laughs> on languages. <laughs> but I am not on that council. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what is Destrotage doing that, <laughs> that kind of makes it different pace at different points in the game? I think of this deck as sort of going fast and then slow and then fast and how it's interacting with the pacing of the game. And I'm saying pacing, I'm kind of like, uh, it's not Mario Kart, but using a, a racing metaphor. So as you're maybe running running a long race, how are you kind of like pacing yourself, you know, making good use of your energy reserves, as it were. Different decks, I think, try to speed up or slow down the game at different at different points, you know, between the beginning, middle, and end game, let's say. So this deck is maybe uh, sees games go very quickly in the beginning, as maybe you and your the opponent are trying to uh, get to that first key quickly. They're probably pushing the pace of the game more so than you, uh, and you're trying to keep up. But it gets to a point where you are capturing lots of amber with, say, Drumble or Old Bruno, or you've got Effervescent Principle uh, kind of knocking them down, plus some of this captured amber going around. And they're almost certain that you've got TMTP, right? Like you've got seven amber on Drumble, they're certain you've got TMTP, and now they're like, okay, so so what next? And you both stare at each other awkwardly across the room, and they're like, well, I don't want to make Amber. And you're like, oh, I'll kind of like push things along a little bit, and you push things along a little bit, and they kind of like creep up towards the edge, and the tension builds and builds and builds. And then eventually, either either you break the tension or they break the tension, but Drumble dies, the dull Bruno gets pawn sacrificed on the TMTP turn. And there's a whole bunch of energy back in the system all at once. And the game closes out very quickly one way or another. And so that's kind of what I mean by pacing profile. It's how is how are the decks interacting with the pacing of the game or dictating the pacing of the game or want the pacing of the game to go. And I'm not really 100% sure, to, I'm going to be honest, 
where to go with that observation yet, other than it's given me some, it's provided some interesting parallels, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second too, but it lends itself to another idea, which we've got sort of floating around, which is kind of like, what are the, what are the fundamental turns of the game? Bar- borrowed term from magic, but you hear uh, this term come up quite a bit where you can't play a, a turn five combo deck in magic. So if your deck combos out and wins consistently on turn five, that's just too slow. And legacy say like like if it, it's got a combo out and win turn four or or faster or it just doesn't matter like you just lose to the decks that are playing fairly and I think there's probably a similar concept in Keyforge which makes a whole lot of sense because we are a racing game talking about making it to three keys and so uh, I think there's there are these there are these critical moments where it's like all right I have to get to the fast part of or the slow part of my game plan where I'm forcing the game down to a halt by turn you know or or before certain things happen it's not a thing that's talked about often but feels very natural especially with folks coming from some other games where things like fundamental turns are talked about a lot you're talking about these turns you're you're referring to spikes is one way you put it right yeah yeah so you can talk an awful lot about how a deck spikes you know what what it's doing to to really kind of stand out either depending on which sloppy lab worker you talk to either in terms of these scales like which scale is it really pushing off the edge of the chart and that's kind of defining its archetype or how it how it's really trying to claim a decisive advantage in the match and this gets back to what we were saying a second ago where pretty much every deck can play creatures and re- can play actions for pips right and i i think you have to look past that a little bit to give a deck a categorization you have to say like what is this deck doing that really stands out and if it if it's kind of like equally good along all of these axes then maybe maybe okay now we're talking about the the unicorn well-rounded deck but it's probably trying to do a thing and i think that's more more interesting or useful for a categorization so destrotage in this case will try to spike by that big tmtp turn and it's going to try to set that up and if the opponent can forge maybe their second key before you have a chance to set that up you may have missed that window sometimes. I think a good example of that too is, is Brig decks. Brig decks definitely need to get that before the second key. ST Russell has a deck that we talked about, what about True Loser, which is I yeah. think three by Nate and two Graft. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. watching a lot of his games from NKFL, the thing that stood out to me, even just as an observer of the game, was it is really trying to go fast out of the gate because it's so important in this Brig match to get the first key. If the opponent gets it before they can, you can bring them, it's going to be a lot harder for you to come back. And so when you talk about the pacing, this deck wants to go fast, slow, fast. Fast because it wants to get the first key, and then it wants to slow things down until it can find the binate rupture combo. It might do that by playing Obeyed the Grim, taking them off check a few times, maybe getting some damage on the Anguish, maybe playing the Shaffles out, things like that. Then it tries to piece together the Brig combo, and it might take a few turns, it might take a little while, and it's not as concerned about rushing to that second key as it was the first key. And then once it gets that combo out there, that's really its spike. You know, like that's when it has the crucial part of the, the game where you have that big brig, you forge your second key, and suddenly you're on check for key three as well at the same time. And then it's just like fast again. So we see this has that pacing profile of fast, slow, fast. And I think uh, Destratage is similar to that, where it is trying to get that first key, take them off check all the time, slow it down a little bit, set up the big TMTP, which really just gets you from two to three really quickly. We may have a candidate name for this sort of pacing profile. 
or at least the the kind of like big payoff, lots of Ambrol at once. Uh, Ketzer in the chat here is saying that that's the distinction in their mind between maybe Rush or uh, Burst, which which feels like feels like kind of a pretty, pretty natural pretty natural delineation. Maybe not quite as good a fit for uh, Brig combo or the TMTP. Maybe, maybe more so the TMTP play than uh, than Brig. Interesting. I don't know. <laughs> or yeah. take it back to the lab. <laughs> take it back to the lab. These are two examples of something that has like a huge burst as the spike, but not every deck has to have the spike being some kind of burst of amber. Mm. We talked to now in stereo about one of his favorite decks to play, uh, the Strategist, which is a Dark Tidings deck. And mm-hmm. this has a very different spike and it has a different a different path to how it goes about the game. I don't want to speak for now in stereo, but having seen it a bit, like it looks like it could be, you know, 24 expected amber is pretty high. Um, this does not play like a rush deck, though. This is a absolute control deck. It is trying to achieve its win condition, the spike turn, which is when it's able to wipe your board, unforge a key, drop out a chronophage, and have the cease forge in archives ready to go. And so this spike turn as we're calling it like this this turn where it's like the turning point in the game in strategist here is very different than like the brick deck we looked at or in destratage this is really like trying to survive to the point where it can set up the combo and then it will have like a it will have a good burst with like the Feroctor you know your discord combo it can get a lot of amber out of that but it's also unforging it's setting up the chronophage and having a cease forge it changes the opponent's ability to respond to it. And it doesn't have a key cheat, but it does have two submersive principles. So it has like lots of ways to take advantage of that. And the way now in stereo has described it when, and I have seen it as well, is that it's kind of an inevitability where it get, it reaches a point when it pulls off that combo, it has that turning point, that spike turn. And there's really not a whole lot the opponent can do to win after that point, because they're suddenly down a key. They're facing a huge burst Sea Sword is ready for as soon as they want it, and very different profile than those other burst decks we saw with the scaling Amber Control. You know, I played this deck when we were preparing for the uh, the team event, a Swindle team event that was going to be uh, Tetrad, and I played. I was piloting this deck against Anakim, right? It was Anakim, yeah. Yep, yep. And uh, I'm not sure I played it like a control deck. I'm not sure I did. It's a really hard deck to play. I've played this deck before as well. Like shortly after he got it, he and I were testing it a lot. He played some games with it. I played some games with it. I could not figure it out. It's extremely hard to play. He has to make very disciplined decisions with Forgive or Forget. There's a lot of very specific archiving that he has to do with it. Super cool deck. Like this is, it, it really showcases Dark Tidings in a way because there's so many strategic decisions you have to make. And Honestly, like I'm not even gonna lie, I played it a couple times. I think three games maybe, and I came away just thinking it wasn't a great deck, and it's just because I didn't realize how to play it better. And there's so much depth, I think, with deck like this. Well, Anakim has to be a tough matchup for it too. I mean, come on, yeah, yeah. Anakim, um, <laughs> I think now Esther and I agreed because when we were playing the Tetrad, he and I were on the team. We we're like, let's bring Strategist and let's bring Anakim because I don't think Strategist can beat Anakim. Anakim's like a Dark Tidings rush with Feroctor, but the Feroctor is like an afterthought in Anakim. Yeah. It's almost like a win more card in that deck. Um, but this does not match up very well with it. Well, I think uh, to, uh, to to toot the horn of some of what we've been talking about, right? 
Anakim is rushing and the fundamental turn, if you will, or the, the spike payoff of the strategist like feels the pressure of that rush. It's not necessarily a comfortable, a comfortable march towards that payoff turn. And, yeah, it doesn't uh, quite have enough answers, I think, for extending the game to the point that it needs to. Yeah. Not against like a true rush deck like that. That's interesting. Can't quite outgrind the old Anakim, I guess. And uh, mm. uh, I should say there is an assertion in the chat that you, you probably should agree with. I don't know. <laughs> DT best set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I hear. That's what you hear. I dig it. But yeah, this is a cool one. And I think uh, a, an interesting example on the, I guess, uh, control front or having having kind of a interesting payoff turn that you build towards. Definitely a tough deck to play and a rewarding one to play, I'm sure. Though the little that I play with it, I felt that there was a lot of potential there and I wasn't wasn't really harnessing it, certainly. Yeah, it definitely feels like that, yeah. I don't know, the other, I guess the other kind of thing or deck I wanted to highlight on this front is uh, I've also been playing a fair bit of Q Westfall of the Seasonal Gully. It is the the Dark Tidings deck that I alluded to in our, uh, in our opening of the, of the bottom of the beaker. It is fairly unassuming in its top number, at least for a competitive prospect, right? 74, unless you are the 73 SAS assassin <laughs> wielder, and 74 is low pickings uh, <laughs> uh, for, for a super competitive setting. Uh, but I, I came by this deck looking at its arc stats in comparison with Combo Grief. So I'm going to pop a bit of compare here real quick, just so we can get a side-by-side. But I think at the time we were talking about like, well, there was some discussion about why why Dark Tidings doesn't get the love that maybe it should get. I think one of the ideas that we had was, well, a number of the good things that Dark Tidings does, you know, some of the sets that come before it can also do. And combined with maybe an underappreciation for it on the offset, it's hard to kind of dethrone some of the favorites that already do some of those things. And Combo Grieve is one that I was considering for my Hex headline at the time. It's a Coda deck that I think you would historically call a heist deck, right? So it's it's got a lot of Amber Generation potential, but a lot of that comes on the back of stealing or taking advantage of your opponent's resources. But 21 raw pips versus uh, Westfall's 23. And, you know, their expected Amber is in the same ballpark. You've got 33 for Combo Grieve, 31 for Westfall. They're board handling situation is very similar you've got you know one decent wipe and then some situational kind of options westfall even has the edge here i would say on the artifact control front so you've really just got tenicus and snudge in combi grieve whereas westfall has molly mock uh, borrow and a horns woggle and has definitely stolen games on borrowed uh, auto encoders mm-hmm. you'd be surprised how many folks will, will throw out high value artifacts against kind of a middling SAS DT. <laughs> these are interesting. Like these could totally be doppelgangers. They feel like it, right? Stats wise, everything about the top, everything about the top number feels like they could absolutely be top, be doppelgangers, like 14, 13 creatures, similar counts on so many fronts. Even the, the strange ordinations and the virtuous works. Like yeah. Mirror each other. Super, super cool. Super cool. Double, double virtuous works, triple strange ordination. They're, they both have a doorstep, both have a booby trap. Or two. I mean, yeah, lots of overlap. And I I guess I bring up this deck in the light of or in the context of pacing, because from a pacing perspective, from a game pacing perspective, it does not feel like combo grieve to me at all. Like it feels like it feels like uh has a very different relationship with the pacing of the game than combo grieve, and it feels a lot closer to Destertage 
interestingly enough. So I find myself doing a lot more handcrafting, a lot less like I'm just going to jam uh, max delta every turn. I'm going to like string out mooklings with gross surges and, and power counters to try and like bump up your your amber, amber total before a payoff doorstep, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's kind of mirrors the Drumble TMTP line a little bit. And yeah, sure, you've, you've got a lot of pips, but I, I find myself playing this deck, maybe for better or worse, a lot more like Destratage than uh, Combo Grief per se. But I don't know, I'm still in sort of an exploration phase with this. It's been interesting to see its comparison on paper with Combo Grieve, but also feel its comparison, feel its similarities to Destratage and how the, the pacing of the games play out. You, you may not steal like with a TMTP, but you can also doorstep and then drop a couple of strange ordinations and suddenly it feels like you just stole a bunch. Yeah, there are definitely definitely those turns. The old doorstep <laughs> double strange ordination turns like, well, let's see. Let's see where this goes. Yeah. A whole lot of pips. Both of them have a similar relationship to Infernus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, it makes it a tough, a tough deck to bring in an open Archon format or even Hexad when there's a lot mm-hmm. of Infernus showing up in MKFL. Definitely makes it trickier. What else do we have? I think that was where like the main points that we've been through. And there's a lot more we have kind of in draft mode that we want to talk about that we still kind of want to stew on a bit more as we think about this. But just to kind of like recap briefly, like we talked about Rush and the Grind Scale. We talked about the pacing profile. Does a deck want to go fast out of the gate? Does it want to go fast in the middle of the game? Um, we talked about like the big spike turn and what decks are trying to do. And I think the important thing that we started with was about how a deck is supposed to win. Um, it's not going to win just by playing a bunch of cards, but it might be winning by building a big board or by preventing the opponent from forging keys in some way or another. So there's a lot of proactive, reactive ways to think about it. And so we're just trying to put all this together and try to think of a, a better way to define archetypes and try to have labels we can give that will tell you how that deck is expected to win, how it's expected to play, and also how you're expected to play against it. So more to come. Love love to uh, hear folks' feedback on some of the stuff that they've heard here or, or didn't hear here and we're expecting to hear. And we're going to keep iterating on the lab and bring you more goodness. Yeah. And we didn't even talk about combo decks, but like we could have, you know, like we talked about Brig a bit, but I don't think we consider Brig combo, so to speak. I think Brig is still like trying to, to win a fair game. It's just how it makes its money is a little bit different. But I think combo, you know, I think personally of like Jenka decks that are mm. cheating the game and trying to make fast keys for nothing, I think is a very different different type of deck than a Brig deck. Interesting. As someone who plays a double Brig deck in their Hexad lineup against some unsuspecting uh, mass mutation lists, it feels very unfair. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Um, mass mutation is the one thing about that set is everyone always obviously loves it for the power level and the strength of the decks. Um, thank goodness they did not print any scaling error control in that set outside of effervescent principle because mm-hmm. Brig is really able to take advantage of mass mutation decks, I think. And I consider that a very good thing. You know, leaving it somewhat susceptible to the uh, rush strategies in our rush grind sense that aren't necessarily dependent on uh, on jamming pips or multi-pip cards is nice that it exists as a uh, Achilles heel. I like it. Um, we're going to actually play a game against Westfall in a minute. 
So uh, why don't we why don't we wrap it up here for the uh, audio portion? Uh, we're gonna let you all know where to find our stuff. So uh, big big heart, big love to the folks in the stream here. We are gonna tra transition play the game in a second, but uh, I'll let you all know that bottom of the beaker is recorded live weekly nine thirty Eastern time in front of an audience of ducks and humans, maybe other animals. I don't know if Quick Draw has any chickens. Uh, you can find uh, two chickens <laughs> watching the show. Uh... They might be. I don't know. I gave them an iPad so they could be <laughs> out in the coop right now watching for all I know. Well, they can find uh, archives of our past shows on YouTube. Search for at sloppy lab work. And for the very best content, 3,457 times distilled and then scraped from the bottom of the beaker, you can uh, search for uh, that exact phrase in your podcaster of choice. And find it there. If you don't find it there, let us know and you will. Yeah. Anything else for the folks getting off at the last audio stop? Quick draw. No, just stay sloppy, everyone. <laughs>